Hello and welcome to our 17th show, believe it or not. So today I have the pleasure of interviewing a very interesting gentleman, Bobak Tavangar, who is the founder and CEO of Brilliant Labs, a company that has made significant inroads into the world of augmented reality through its development of an open source augmented reality glasses hardware platform. The company has attracted significant investment, including from prominent figures such as Adam Chaya, co-founder of Siri, and Brendan Ireb, co-founder of Oculus VR. Bobak's approach to AR is unique, and it's focused on integrating advanced vision capabilities into glasses. Really interesting stuff. Before founding Brilliant Labs, Bobak ventured into the AR space with two startups, on developing computer vision software with AI for existing hardware platforms before most of us were looking at this stuff. Despite the challenges in these ventures, his passion for AR technology persisted, leading to his eventual establishment of Brilliant Labs in Hong Kong in 2019, which later moved to Singapore. So the interesting thing about this interview or this uh, conversation with Bobak was that he approached me and he's not the first entrepreneur to approach me to get on the program, which is a great accolade for us. But generally, I've always said no to these because uh, I don't see this uh, uh, as a platform for advertising. But Bobak really uh, came open heartedly and uh, was really interested in just having the conversation. And my sense was that this potentially could be something interesting, and it certainly was. He's a very intelligent and articulate human being. What he's doing, I think, is important and very interesting in the space. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bobak Tavanga. I don't have an agenda on where it goes. I'm kind of let you know the gods do their thing, um, and uh, kind of very interested to dig into kind of the world that you're operating in and and um i guess what's different here is to date i've been interviewing um a cross-section of people so entrepreneurs who are kind of in flight who i know about who have got them through, you know i know i'm through the, my network and i know they've got interesting stories um uh I, and and i've had a couple of other approaches from international uh, well, you know, what's international for me? So it's people outside Australia who's going, hey, you know, I want to get on. And um, you're the first one I said okay to because I kind of just immediately kind of picked up that you kind of were coming at, at this, you know, pretty open-heartedly and just wanted to kind of, <clears throat> you know, fly the kite and, and see if this is, you know, if this is good for you and, you know, but hopefully good for us too. And so yeah, I was happy to kind of roll the dice on it. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of the pre-brief. I might even include some of that in the, in the, in the intro because I'm recording now. Um, but look, welcome, Bobak. Thank you for, for reaching out. It's nice to meet you. How are you? Likewise. Thanks for having me, Peter. I'm doing pretty well. I, um, it looks like it by the stuff that I'm, I'm reading about you. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm very, uh, interested to understand a little bit more about how you got to where you got to and, and what you're doing now. Uh, I think the space is really, you know, obviously still fledgling, but it's, you know, uh, there seems to be an open source component to what you're doing. And, um, but maybe, maybe we start off with, uh, just telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, and, and before I go ahead and, and I don't, I, 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 I've got a sneaking suspicion you've got Persian heritage. That's right. Okay. My ne just fun fact. <laughs> my nephew is half Persian, so uh, we've got Greek heritage. My sister married a Persian chap uh, who escaped from 
Iran on the back of a motorbike in the 80s um, through through Afghanistan and whatnot. Uh, my, I'm very proud of my nephew, Shah, who just got married and uh, is on track to become a barrister. I don't know what the equivalent is in the States, but I presume you know. Um, yeah. So it's quite a successful That's young not- guy. Um, and um, yeah, so so I, I know a spattering of, of Persian words, but I won't embarrass myself on this. But um uh, but at least, but I, I, uh, I got in front of uh, the, the you know, the, this this unique name that you've got. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Look, well. Go ahead. Well, and that's. Um, I mean, it, it's an interesting segue because um, you know to give a little background to myself, and I usually don't focus on my Persian heritage, but something that I have come to appreciate, and this does tie into my line of work. Um, Persian culture very much celebrates the coming together of the arts and uh, technology, engineering, um, the sciences. And in fact, there's a rich lineage in Persian culture of invention across both of these uh, two systems of knowledge. Yeah, you know, across the sciences and then, you know, invention in the engineering world, um, incredible legacy in the Persian empire. Um, And then of course, in the arts, uh, whether it's, you know, poetry or handicrafts, uh, there's just so much rich you know pottery a lot of modern pottery we have to thank from you know persian uh empire uh innovation there and how that propagated over the silk road and so there's there's a lot of coming together of uh of, of the arts and technology um that uh, really inform how i think about you know in this modern day as a modern persian uh trying to do something great in the world right um how, how i think about innovation that's so it it's, the, it's the, that's really interesting. Um, Shahin, uh, my nephew, uh, made his own rings. His own, he melted the gold and made his own rings. It kind of touches on what you're talking about. He's very much a DIY type of guy. He wants to get involved and understand how everything works specifically. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, like I kind of did a little bit of uh, background. You've got a unique sort of educational background. But before we get on to, to um, uh, your, your business, maybe talk a little bit about kind of, you know, uh, your education. You work for Microsoft. You work for, for Apple, I believe, if I'm not, if I got my stuff right. Maybe talk a little bit about that and then tell us how you, how you got to, to, to your business. Where, where, where did that come from? Where did that opportunity come from? Yeah, and um, you know, stop me if I'm if I'm sort of blathering here. But I uh, started uh, in in the U.S. Of course, born and raised outside Philadelphia. Did my undergraduate in Washington D.C. Very much an economics and um, international affairs buff. So I, I and still am, you know, very interested in how uh, the 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 political economy of the world fits together like a jigsaw puzzle, an evolving jigsaw puzzle, and just really trying to understand that. Um, not just in terms of institutions, but also culture and people, how these things affect each other. So, um, uh, and in fact, I, you know, now that I look back, when I was younger, I think I probably put too much weight on the power of institutions. But the older I've become, especially since I've become a father, I've become more aware of the power of, um, of culture and, and, uh, and relationships. Um, and the importance of that in shaping, you know, the uh, how 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 things unfold in the world stage. So um, that that really was where I started. I went to grad school in the UK at Cambridge University, and you know, Cambridge like Oxford, it's like a modern Hogwarts. Um, you know, I was amazed that places like that still existed in the world. It was so wonderful, and you know, every evening I was dining with 
people who are diving deep into different disciplines, um, biophysics and poetry and theater and uh, choir and song and computer science, all of us sitting together every single night. And uh, it became sort of a cross-pollination of knowledge across disciplines. And you know that really affected um, my interest at that age. And, I, and then they started to broaden. I started to think more intentionally about what it was to be a human being, what it was to have uh, uh, reference points of knowledge um, and identity that touched many different aspects of of, of human existence um, and, and therefore how to orient one's career. And, you know, I started to think about, okay, well, uh, there's a few things that amplify, you know, the human being and, and who and what we are. One of them, of course, is education and how we're taught to think. Uh, one of them is technology um, and one of them is faith. So I zeroed in on these three things. It might not be an exhaustive list, but that's sort of where my mind was at the time. Um, I, for whatever reason, I never felt like I would be a very uh, effective educator. Um, I, I loved being educated, but I just doubted my own ability to be useful to, you know, a, a young mind or a classroom of young minds. So, um, so I, I quickly turned my attention over to, uh, to faith and, uh, you know, you, you might have come across this as well in your own research. So I'm a, a practicing Baha'i, member of the Baha'i faith. As, the, as, and, is, uh, as is my family, my, that side of the family, by the way. Oh, so, so it was a okay. Baha'i ceremony. I had a suspicion it might be. Uh, I'm a card-carrying yeah. atheist, but I have some wonderful... Uh, and look, I definitely believe the universe is intelligent. How you want to frame that, it's up to you. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, so look, you, you, you know, you're, in, you're in safe hands here, mate. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, so and then you probably know, you know, the, the Baha'i faith is a very inclusive um, sort of world-embracing um, uh, faith. You know, it, it really espouses this notion that the earth is one country and mankind is citizens. Uh, that it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you look like, uh, what language you speak. Um, all of us are brothers and sisters. Um, we believe from the same creator. So, um, you know, I, 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 all that's to say, I, I, I draw a lot from my faith, but, um, you know, I, I, I kind of had that second bucket checked or the second box checked. And so that left me with technology, which had become an increasing interest of mine. By that point, I'd, I'd spent time at Microsoft, um, their, their research center in Beijing. Um, and I started to appreciate how you could write a line of code and distribute that to a billion people at near zero marginal cost. And it could fundamentally transform how they saw themselves and their place in the world, how they connected with others, um, or how they accessed knowledge and information. And that's just, and it remains today, it's just such a magical phenomenon. Um, the closest thing to magic that I think all of us have access to since our ancestors first discovered fire. Um, and, and we're playing with it every single day, either as creators or as passive recipients of that magic. And, um, and, and you know, so that's how I decided I wanted to orient my career. Okay, fantastic. And, and so, so, so at what point did, I guess, I mean, I, I obviously I deal a lot in that kind of that segue between you know sitting on the couch and you know light bulb bobs up. So when did that happen for you? Uh, I believe you had a couple of ventures that didn't uh, necessarily you know work. Um, and, and look, you know, they're 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 the greatest educators of all, right? Um, so so maybe tell us a little bit about that, and and then you take us into to this to this venture with the with the monocle that you're working on. 
Yeah, well, I've um, I've always, uh, for better or worse, I've been prone to the lightning bolt sort of, you know, um, uh, starting pistol phenomenon as an entrepreneur. So my first company um, out of graduate school, that actually, it was a lightning bolt that hit me while I was in a lecture uh, at Cambridge and um, uh, decided that I was going to uh, not do my PhD, you know, I'd already been admitted to do a, a PhD at that time. So I was, I was set to stay uh, at Cambridge for, you know, at least the next three, four years. Um, but I decided instead to say no to that and do a company instead. Um, you're right. You learn a lot. You learn a lot about people management. You learn a lot about how to how to get your arms around a big idea and execute on that in a disciplined way. Um, there, there's We could spend probably an entire conversation just diving deep into what you learn in a venture. But um, you know, suffice to say, uh, that didn't work out after a couple of years. Um, we took a lot of the core technology, some of the team and our and our investors and pivoted to something new. So we started our next venture. Um, that, after a number of years, ended in an aqua hire situation. Um, so, you know, a soft landing, you could call it. Yep. Um, some of our team joined the larger company and I went to Apple. Um, it was through that journey, maybe before I get into the Apple side of things, it was through the journey of, of running these companies that... I wrap my mind increasingly around uh, what they call graph databases. So graph data, which is not seeing data in rows and columns the way that a lot of databases or even Excel spreadsheet present data, but instead seeing data in the context of their relationships. Right. So, you know, think about a schoolyard of friends. Um, it, it's more about seeing how the friends are related to each other, who is more popular and more sought after, you know, who's on the periphery of that friend network. Um, and how does that evolve over time? So being able to understand and query data in terms of its relationships, um, that, you know, fascinating. And I believe the world is very much organized like a graph, a giant global graph. That's, you know, all things are connected. And, and at the same time, diving deeper into artificial intelligence, um, machine learning, specifically computer vision. So how AI is applied to single frame or multiple frames that a camera pulls in mm -hmm. and then tries to um, analyze those things, um, recognize and understand what it's seeing, um, and then deliver that output to uh, to a user. So these sort of two themes uh, continued to recur and, and just my fascination increased. But I hit a certain point in my in my last company where I we were playing with AR technology, you know, we were just sort of experimenting with it. There were early SDKs available at the time, especially one from a company called Wickitude another from a company called Matayo, which was later acquired by Apple. Um, and it was all sort of available in a phone. And I remember walking around um, Hong Kong at that time. I was living in Hong Kong and, you know, sort of holding my phone up in front of my face, looking around. And, you know, on one hand, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I can, I can look at the city through the screen and I can see elevated information and context that are not apparent to my own eyes. This is really cool. But at the same time, who wants to walk around right. with their hand offered in front of their face and you know the latency issues and occlusion issues and um so it, it clearly was not ready for prime time and it got me really you know it was the first time i remember this sort of feeling that um you know the maturity of the smartphone and sort of that incarnation of computing that maybe we're starting to bump up against the 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 sides of the of the parameters of this thing that perhaps we're beginning to outgrow um you know we're like uh, again a lot of my references now because i have young kids they're like baby references yep. um you know we're, we're we're starting to outgrow diapers right that we are we're for what's next and and that's a good thing 
So I became really interested in AR, but specifically AR hardware. Right. Um, and, you know, Apple obviously is very interested in that area. Uh, Google, you know, Facebook uh, or Meta. As they're Google, now known. Google had Google Glass, which they put a bullet through. That's it. That's right. That's right. And, and that uh, I remember I was in grad school and I saw that demo in 2012, their big glass announcement. And that captivated me. I mean, that was amazing, that right. announcement. And um, they, they eventually, yeah, they put a bullet in it, had all these privacy concerns. Um, but I, that, that stuck with me. It was like, wow, computing in front of the eye, you know, uh, 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 helping you see a reality that's not readily apparent based purely on what's physically in front of you. That is, I mean, to take, you know, this notion of magic, like that is the next leap in how this stuff is magical in our lives. Um, and so that got me on this journey of thinking about AR hardware and uh, and how that might one day manifest in each of our lives. So, so, so at that point, I'm interested in the journey. So, so at that point, did you go, right, okay, I'm on, I'm going to incorporate a company. I'm going to start writing a business plan. I'm going to start, I've got an R&D piece. So is that what you did or did you kind of, did it come to you and you're, you know, what? I think I've got a business here. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's it's interesting. I, you know, what's funny is I um, I had this feeling at the tail end of my previous company, but the company was not. I didn't know anything about doing hardware at that time. Um, none of my colleagues did. We were all software people, and um, uh, uh, I, I remember thinking, okay, I, I have this feeling of out, you know we are collectively starting to perhaps outgrow the confines of the phone, but I don't. You know, I'm sure there are going to be large companies that have a lot of money and an army of incredibly talented people who are going to solve this problem. Mm. And so at that point, I'm like, wow, I can't wait to see what they all cook up. Yeah, this is exciting. Um, and fast forward a couple of years, a company called Magic Leap, yeah. if you remember them, they they yeah. launched a device, you know, they'd been in stealth for a long time. People were, the rumors about how amazing their stuff was. And they released their Magic Leap 1, their first headset, and, you know, I think it's safe to say that it didn't quite capture the popular imagination the way that the hype had uh, promised it might. And at that, you know, from that moment on, it was just this like downward cascade for the AR industry collectively. Mm. There were a bunch of other companies. And I think people started to like the. It's actually kind of looking back fascinating. Um, when Magically belly flopped on their first device um, after raising $5 billion or something and having an army of people working away at it for years, Every almost every other AR company that was similarly overhyped, bubbles started to pop. So there were a few of them went out of business in succession, um, despite raising tremendous amounts of money and having talented people and a lot of hype. And AR entered a bit of a winter. And you know there were all these rumors. But wow, so Google's put a bullet in their thing. All these AR startups were popping or going out of business in front of our eyes. Um, you know. Uh, Apple's rumored to be working on something, but we don't know what that's going to be or when that's going to come out. Um, and and it, there was sort of nothing in the interim. You know, Microsoft was plugging away at the HoloLens, but that was like three thousand plus dollars, and you know, heavy on the head. It wasn't it wasn't something mass market ready. Um, and so it was at that point hmm. I was already at Apple, and I started to see this sort of broader, this macro, you know, context unfold. And I started to think less as a consumer and more as a potential uh, creator, a designer. 
of, uh, of, of, of a device like this. Can I, um, can I interrupt you there, Bob? Sorry, mate. I, 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 you said a couple of things that are really, really interesting there, which um, uh, I, I'm going to comment on. Um, interestingly, it, it, it surprises me still that um, the expectation is, and, and correct me if I'm, I'm mishearing you, I apologize in advance, but that the expectation is that the big end of town is going to innovate. innovate. So, you know, that Apple or Microsoft or, or Google, whatever, have got the DNA because they did come out of a garage and they did innovate in their first incarnations. And, you know, and Apple did some amazing things later, but they still had Steve Jobs at the helm, right? Um, but once that, once you go over, across the Rubicon and you become, a, you become this big machine, your DNA is not to innovate. Your DNA is to protect, right? You might take some strategic, unless you've got a gun to your head, like if you have um, uh, Boeing had an interesting story where on the, they bet the farm on 747, right? So if they, the 747 was going to be successful, they were gone. So, so unless they were, but that's generally not the way, uh, you know, shareholders and, you know, board of directors. So this is my first comment. Um, some standard, clearly intelligent human being like yourself. Um, you still expected that, the, that the, you know, the, these, these enterprises are going to bring you, uh, you know, bring you the stuff when, when, when I, you know, unlikely based on historical evidence. So that's my first point. The other point, slightly different. Um, who was the company that raised $5 billion? I know this happens. You know, sometimes they raise some, some big numbers. Um, uh, whoever that was, it astounds me that, you know, you know, the normal mass of economics is, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a million bucks into your business. You know, I've got a five-year horizon. If I triple my money over five years, I'm a happy guy. All right. Five billion. Yeah. Five billion. <laughs> you better be thinking. Yeah. You're thinking about some big ROI, dude. <laughs> You know, yeah. I, I, I just don't understand it at that end of town where they think we're going to drop $5 billion into this thing and we're going to allocate that capital efficiently. Anyway, that's yeah. more of a comment than a question than anything else. Um, but both of those were really comments. So um, uh, so, it's, so it's interesting that you kind of found yourself being the, the thinking, oh, I think maybe this is, I got to do this myself. Yeah, well, and, and you're exactly right. I mean, to your first point, I um, I think it was because it was, it it, it it was and is a hardware problem fundamentally and hardware is very hard very expensive long lead times and it's the kind of thing that um only a handful full of, uh, of companies have really demonstrated an ability to do hardware well and and so that's you know if you think of software i think my assumption was hey software is so liquid and so you know democratized the tools sure. the skill set to be able to spin up software and uh, you know, uh, distribute that to a lot of people tomorrow. Um, you, you know, a small company of a couple of folks can can disrupt a whole industry with software. But hardware, different animal. Um, but also because in this space, the way that they were trying to go about doing it, and this was where you know I'll get into this in a second. But this is where our sort of very differentiated insight came. They were they were trying to reinvent the wheel um, across a range of core hardware technologies that entailed um, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and an army of PhDs, uh, and years of deep research and development. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's always very risky, and it's certainly the kind of risk that only large tech companies can afford to make. Or a company like Magic Leap, which had raised a few billion dollars 
uh, and ultimately didn't have a terrible amount to show for it in terms of uh, usable product. But um, uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, it's otherwise like it, it's not necessarily the big companies that are delivering uh, the most exciting innovation. And this uh, recent, uh, you know, the past year's wave of AI companies which have emerged and are changing our world all over again. There, you know, that's that's evidence of that. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, 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 take us, take us into Brilliant Labs and and this first product. And I'm going to try and try and uh, um, understand it better. And, and I guess, in a way, kind of uh, put you know put my investor hat on to you know you know how what the traction is in terms of getting those first use cases. Because you you know you mentioned you know Magic Labs and, and these various companies who come up with this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. But market fit's not there. The pricing's not there. The capability to produce it, as in, in, in you know, to manufacture it in volume, to be able to, to, to get it to market, even though it goes bing. But can you, can you deliver the thing? You know, um, so, 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 so introduce us to Brilliant Labs and, and you know, talk to us about your product. Yeah, well, we started Brilliant Labs. So after I left Apple. You know, again, I had a bit of a lightning bolt moment and um, fortunate that my wife is very encouraging. Um, you know, we had a one year old at the time. My son was one. And, you know, she could clearly see that this idea was bouncing around my head. And she was very encouraging and said, look, you know, you should you should explore this. You should pursue this. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, I, I know you you'll be miserable right. looking back and that you never uh, you never took the shot. So. Very fortunate to have a, a, you know, I think that makes a huge difference to have an encouraging. Crit uh, critical. Uh, absolutely critical. Critic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so joined up with my co-founders. Um, we started off with sort of sketches on a napkin, a lot of debates around form factor, what what wasn't working, um, what ought these devices be used for? You know, we, we really questioned the assumption that these devices should even exist because all of us have these great screens and 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 computing devices in our lives, uh, multiple screens uh, all the time. Why do we need one more? What's the purpose for this thing's existence? I, I have four, and, by the way, four in front of me. Oh, <laughs> well, exactly. I've I've got. Uh, That's not I've including the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I think that's par for the course. You know, so so why do you need another? screen and and i think the insight that we landed on that early on was okay this thing needs to be really light it needs to be all in one you know to date a lot of the other devices they've been bulky expensive and there have been a big wire coming out of the back yeah that like hooked into a side mounted thing or your phone and drained your phone's battery in an hour um and still a lot of those devices are characterized like that but we said okay this has to be wireless it has to be super lightweight it has to fit in your pocket so it needs to feel like a trinket, something that you sort of covet. Um, and, you know, we, we really referenced the AirPods heavily in those early days yeah. um, where it's just this little sort of, you know, uh, uh, like, a, like a clamshell from the ocean with a pearl inside. And you just, you know, it's delightful to carry with you and it's beautiful to the touch and you value it. So we, we knew it needed to feel like that. Um, but most importantly, we knew it couldn't be something that just brought console grade graphics in front of your eyes. Because first of all, we struggled to really see the use case there. We think it makes for great, like, like gimmicky YouTube videos and like ads. And that's what those companies at that time 
were were pushing onto the mass market and captivating the mass imagination with. Hmm. We that's said, a that's okay, a Tom look, Cruise look. moment on what was it? What was the movie? Uh, I can't remember the name of the movie where he had. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, yeah. That's you know right. What I'm Yes, 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 yes. Where he's sort of shifting the yeah, screens around yeah, and yeah. <laughs> uh, blanking on the name of them. But yeah, that's exactly right. Um, people wanted that experience. And maybe at some point in the future, we will have that in a way that looks good, feels good, is priced right. But it's not, you know, not now. We can't force the physics just for the sake of, of, of pursuing that. So we really questioned what it should be for. And where we landed on was we need to start planting the seeds for um, a co-pilot in your life. Because there's gonna be things that you hear, things that you see, um, information available on the web that is relevant to the life you're living in that moment. But number one, your brain's not hooked up to the web. And number two, we don't always catch, in fact, you can count on us not catching most of what we see and hear, um, consciously or Oh, right? for sure. Yeah, we couldn't process that much information. That's right. And so to have a co-pilot which sees and understands your reality and is elevating, you know, an intelligence that elevates useful information to you in that moment where it's actionable um, and at some point even executes on tax, tasks for you um, to, to help you get more done in a given moment. Uh, we, we thought that that was a much more compelling path and justified the existence of these technologies of a device like this. So so that's the path we're on. So, uh, Brilliant so lab. Have you got a use case that you could you could provide to sort of give us an idea? Because I keep on imagining the temperature. <laughs> yeah, I can see the temperature, right. but I'm sure it's probably more than that. No, that's right. Um, I mean, right now, today, so we do devices um, like, you know, Monocle is the first to market. We're going to be announcing one next week. Um, that'll be sort of the next big leap forward for us, uh, which we're quite excited about. Um, and they interface with a suite of generative AI uh, products. So an example of that might be the whisper model to do simultaneous translation. So you're walking down the street, let's say you're in Hong Kong, someone is speaking Cantonese, you would see English subtitles uh, right in front of your eyes, holographically displayed. Um, GPT-4, which was announced by OpenAI, um, and will be in public release very soon. Um, that, through a pair of glasses, would enable you to, you know, look at a, a rash on your hand and uh, get a, a provisional diagnosis. I hesitate just to use the word diagnosis, but, you know, a provisional assessment by the model of what this is and perhaps even a home remedy that you can put together or something you could buy from the nearby pharmacy to treat that rash. Right. Um, or, you know, again, because I've got young kids, you know, your, your kid is keeping you up uh, through the night because they have a bad cough, you know, a chest cough. The microphones would be able to hear that, pick out certain elements of the audio. And similarly, GPT-4 would be able to elevate, you know, a, a response that, hey, this sounds like RSV, you know, it's, it's you know running rampant in your area and, you know, you should go take your kid to the doctor tomorrow. So, um, okay. Okay. and then maybe one more that I'm really excited about is AI web search. So there's a company called Perplexity. Uh, we tap into some of their services. And, you know, wearing, a, uh, you know, a device, you could walk down the street, look at a restaurant, and just ask, what reviews does this place get? And uh, what are people saying they do really well? What should I get if I go there? And um, this, this large language model can take snippets 
benefits of a precise response from the whole web. That could include Yelp, it could include Google, anything, um, a blog, and they could bring that to answer your precise question using images and audio data that you fed it. So it, it really starts to take the shape of a co-pilot to amplify your latent biological powers. So, so would I be wrong in thinking that the actual device itself that clips onto your, your glasses is really acting as a communications point between it and your platform that's then basically using third party so you don't you don't have to build it yourself you're just tapping into the best of the breed uh, and i guess you know, like a lego set in a way to say okay use case you know this use case this is going to use this this and this you know that that use case is going to use this this and this is, is that kind of the way you kind of arc, the architecture is, should look in my head this episode is sponsored by 3p legal i've been a customer of peter north as my lawyer and now 3p legal for over a decade Peter and his team are friendly and approachable, which takes the stress out of having to navigate the complexities of legal business matters. Whether starting a business, buying or selling a business, handling contracts or estate planning, their personalised attention and quality of work is second to none. Find Peter and his team at www.3pcorp.com.au or email pnorth at 3plegal.com.au if you need commercial or personal legal services, particularly if you're a startup. You know, yeah, at the high level, you can kind of say, yeah, so our devices are really just a, a bunch of sensors right. um, and some compute packed into a, you know, a, a very tight form factor that you wear, and they experience your life as you experience your life. Yes, because it's the and presentation. Without... It's the presentation layer, really. Yeah, so it's, it's, you, you, right. your, it's this new type of UX. Yep, it's capturing and it's presenting. There's a bit of uh, processing that happens on the device, okay. well, you know, in terms of the, the, the images, the audio, um, the movement data that it captures. And then it sends that over to any one of a range of models. Um, and the software we've written um, off device, it kind of acts like Grand Central Station, right. where it routes, you know, to, hey, your intention is to make this kind of query or your intention is to access this kind of information. So it will route you to the right model. Now, under the hood, um, there's a lot more going on in terms of um, how we'll process that data, um, how we most efficiently make use of the output from one model and feed that into a second model um, to really get the most accurate or the fastest response. So there's a lot of innovation under the hood there. Um, it's not as simple as I wish. It was as simple as just being able to throw something at someone else's API and then throw the response back at you. Um, but longer term, and maybe this is where you're going, but longer term, we see a lot of strategic value and frankly, sort of customer experience value in this layer in between the device and the cloud-based AI, which is what we call life graph. Mm. And that is, you know, going back to, remember I was telling you about, you know, my previous company and notion of graph databases, connected data. Um, the devices are pulling in a lot of rich information about what you see and do and who you're with and where you go. And in a privacy protecting way for your eyes only, we can take all of that data and structure it as a graph, mm -hmm. only accessible and viewable by you and your device. And that means that it can track over time who you are, what you're interested in. And so your AI can deliver increasingly personalized responses to you. So that is sort of this middle layer of insight, uh, a growing body of data that no large 
with the exception of you know folks like Facebook and Google who've been mining this data yep. in terms of our direct web usage, um, no device company has this about us. And you know, for us, we don't have an ad model that's going to mine this data for someone else's benefit. You know, we'll spin up a server instance, it'll sit there, and we will literally give you the keys. So we ourselves won't even have access to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we think it's a really valuable part of the stack that we can contribute to in addition to the device itself. And that means that your interactions with an artificial intelligence over time will be that much more personalized. It'll know you, it'll understand you. It'll appreciate that, hey, last week you had a very stressful interaction at work and this week, you know, here's a different way, a different tack you can take with that colleague or with your manager. Um, or, you know, we know that you're a vegetarian and when you walk into this restaurant, we highly recommend sticking with this part of the menu and doubling down on this ingredient in this dish because this morning for breakfast you didn't have your b12 yeah. vitamins or whatever it, it must be, be able so, to pick up but you know bio bio data as well that's not normally you know the thing on your wrist or whatever um at the risk of sounding flippant sometimes the simplest ones are the best you know i'm terrible with names i mean i'll remember yours now but you know, generally, if I meet, you know, a Fred or a Mike or, you know, uh, Kathy, very quickly, I go, you know, just simply to walk yep. into, a, into a networking event and go, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, <laughs> you know, that, that would be great. <laughs> and, and where I last and met them and, you know, whatever. We, well, I mean, you, you probably guess we get this, uh, you know, this, this uh, all the time that this sort of a universal human problem, it seems. And I have the same problem where you'll meet someone and literally the next moment I'm kicking myself because I've already forgotten their name. Um, and, and, and you want to know the context around who they are and, and mutual contacts that you know, contacts you might have with them and where you've seen them before. Um, but I'll even take it a step further and say at a certain point, uh, you know, uh, in this digital age, I think the distance between people, between neighbors, um, has grown. And there's even an epidemic of loneliness yeah. that I think afflicts many societies. Devices like this, I believe, can also play a role not just in helping us uh, remember a familiar face or remember someone we just met, but even nudge us to have a serendipitous interaction with someone new. Right. Um, and I don't know how that should look yet, but I have this sort of gut feeling that um, if smartphone played an indelible and very unfortunate role in in creating wedges between us, like just enough, you know, sort of screens to drive us apart and decrease the number of warm interactions between us, I think the next generation of computing uh, will do the opposite if designed right, mm. if designed with that intention, that, uh, and that's certainly something that we have. I, I think it's a, it's a, I think that's a, that's a great vision for it. I hope, you, I hope you're right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking now more from the business point of view. So you're, 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 you've delivered to, to your first cohort of customers. You've got your first customers. So what? Is, so how's that going? How, how, and what's the business model? How are you pricing that? Because obviously you've got infrastructure. You've got to keep running for the thing to work. So if you pay a couple hundred dollars for it, that's probably not enough to keep, I'm guessing. So how, how are you doing that? Well, you know, the cool thing about zeroing in on a more focused use case is that you know, we found that when we worked backward from that, from those early days, the product that we were able to design and deliver around that was a dramatically simpler and more focused device that used um, uh, off-the-shelf components um, and 
Oops, I just wanted to. Yeah, that's that that's otters dropped out. My my um subscription, they must have changed their terms because normally, you know, I'd get a bazillion hours a month. So I have to follow up on that. I'll just crack, okay. crack it on. Okay, okay. Um, did you want to do like a any kind of sound check on your end or anything? We're all good. No, Should no, we keep going. No, we're all good. We're all good. I've got. Uh, yeah, now all good. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll, um, so we found that when you start with the use case and work backward from there, in other words, you endeavor not to deliver, in our case, console grade graphics in front of someone's eyes the way that other companies had been doing it, but instead you really double down on a cloud-based intelligence as a co-pilot in your life. The device we found can be dramatically simpler. You can use a lot of off-the-shelf components. You don't need to be in 10 years spending lots of money on fundamental R&D. Um, and so we we have about 60% margin for every device sold. And, you know, we're a startup, so that's at low volumes. And as we all know, you know, economies of scale kick in when volumes increase. So you've got more negotiating power with your with your vendors, with your key suppliers. Um, and so, you know, that picture is only going to look better. Um, you know, one of the things that we had, uh, the goals in mind that we had when we launched Monocle about a year ago was that we wanted to, focus on unit economics this is our first device to market so we really wanted to get unit economics right um, so making sure that yields across every stage of production were 90 percent or above um, uh, and that we were sticking to that 60 percent margin per unit uh, regardless of, of what stage of the cycle we were selling so that was number one and we've been able to accomplish that um, uh, so we're on sort of firm footing as a company uh, the second is um, we we just wanted to make sure that the industry and sort of our little niche of the technology world came to appreciate that you could do an AR device in a different way that, you know, it could be AI focused as opposed to sort of, you know, heavy graphics focused and that there might be more utility there. So we wanted to just, even in our own little, you know, small way, plant a flag in the ground and have uh, an perhaps outsized impact through that on how the rest of the industry thought about these devices. Um, and so none of those two things are contingent upon volume right. because, you know, we're a small team. We wanted to have a high degree of control over our costs so that we didn't, you know, the, the train didn't start to run away from us. We were always in control of the speed of that train. Um, and, and so those were our two priorities this year. Um, and, and maybe a third was no inventory. Um, uh, so we've been able to accomplish all three. No, no inventory um, in, in terms of, so let me ask a stupid question. So I'm assuming you've contracted a manufacturer or are you doing the manufacturing yourself? Like, No, we, yeah, I mean, Hey, one day I'd love for us to have our own, you know, Tesla has their gigafactory, right? I'd love to be able to do our own manufacturing in house. That'd be great. But, uh, no, we, we work very closely with, uh, a key contract manufacturer. In fact, a couple of strategic suppliers, but especially one. They mold our optics. They do the final assembly of the device. Um, they're they're called Movion Technologies. They're based in Singapore, um, and uh, they're also a multi uh, sort of time investor in the company. So okay. they've invested over multiple. Yeah. So uh, you know that was something that early on I knew we needed because um, hardware is hard. It's costly, and we needed to be able to stretch every dollar to become five or ten dollars, and uh, we needed to keep our team small but augment our own capabilities, you know, our own kind of core design and engineering capabilities with an extended team that can prototype, that can develop, um, that could quickly translate what's designed and prototyped into what's production ready. 
and um, and also you know we just need an alignment of uh, uh, sort of um, intellectual property protection, um, and um, uh, and and we found that in in Movion um, uh, as our key supplier there. So uh, you know strategically it's worked out really well for us, um, and and so with Monocle, yeah, like positive unit economics, um, consistently positive yields. Um, that are like in that right range that a hardware company needs to stay profitable. Um, no inventory, so it means that everything we make, we sell, and we've been able to sort of get a pretty fine, finely honed sort of sense of supply demand there and how those curves line up. Um, uh, and then uh, we've been able to positively influence, I think, how a lot of people in the industry begin to think about this. So, uh, you know, we've had coverage, all organic, you know, coverage, inbound coverage in like Bloomberg, Forbes, TechCrunch, um, you know, some of the usual suspects in tech and, um, uh, you know, all of that coverage and even our marketing has been, uh, it's been organic. We haven't right. done any paid marketing. Um, so we, we don't, we don't spend on ads. We don't buy demand. Um, so we knew that if we could emerge with, you know, this kind of a picture after a year of sales of our first device, then we would have a pretty good foundation upon which to grow. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and we definitely have achieved that. So, so what? So what's the business yeah. model? Are you thinking you're going to distribute through resellers or retailers, or are you doing it all online? Uh, I guess the opportunity to do it all online, and, and and also I'll circle back to my question around how do people do? Do they buy a subscription and pay for the hardware, or how do how do they, how do you do that? Yeah, well, today is one-off purchases of hardware, so there's no subscription, but uh, there's a heavy caveat there because we're starting to spin up. An increasing number of AI services, and that stuff is not cheap, especially if it's a vision-based model. Um, we we will likely, you know, we haven't announced anything concrete yet, but we will likely spin us spin up a subscription service, um, sort of a monthly recurring model on top of the hardware sale. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, it'll look perhaps similar to what we're familiar with from Apple, where they'll sell us an iPhone and then. You know, there will be a monthly recurring subscription to like iCloud or Apple TV or any one of a range of services that they offer. Mm. Um, so our, our business model will start to look like that as well. Um, uh, and then um, uh, to, your, to your earlier question, yeah, we sell everything direct from our website. So we don't go through distributors. Uh, we don't sell through Amazon. Uh, people just come direct to brilliant.xyz. They click the buy button and we ship to them uh, within that day or the next day. Um, and uh, Any, anywhere, uh, anywhere in the world or anywhere in the world, uh, which isn't under sanctions. Um, so anywhere in the world where we can sell. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, um, we've got customers everywhere. Um, you know, Australia, we've got a lot of customers there. Um, our, our customers, as you might guess, they tend to skew heaviest toward the US. Um, there's like a heavy early adopter culture there, especially in Silicon Valley, New York. Um, uh, a lot of folks in in the, the the Washington State sort of Seattle area, um, you know, Microsoft, Facebook, Reality Labs are up there, so we've got a lot of customers there. Um, and then yeah, EU and you know across Germany, the UK, uh, broader EU, we've got a fair number of customers there. And Japan, you know, we yeah. we were surprised because we don't have any Japanese language uh, stuff, uh, at least not yet. And from the very little that I understand about Japan, it's it's that um, it's a country that really requires a lot of 
sort of specialized knowledge, specialized access to local partners, and things need to be in uh, in the local language, um, and and you know just heavy localization around all the marketing, um, and yeah, at least in terms of the customers that have come our way, it's been it's been a significant number from Japan have purchased Monocle, and we haven't done any you know localized marketing there, so. That also told us something. That was very interesting. But what does your average customer look like? Is it a is it a male, female? I'm assuming it's male. But um, uh, and is it your you know more engineering, geeky type you know people, or is it, it kind of? Yeah, it's monocles, um, open source, and hackable nature, and just the form factor itself. You know, we we're sort of a little tongue in cheek about it. Like, hey, you know, be a cyborg. You right. know, and like hacking the AI experience in front of your eyes. We're very, you know, we're we're not trying to do the hard sell and convince people that like this is how everyone ought to look. Um, but this might just be your most useful AR workbench tool. Hmm. So uh, it it skews you know heavily developer. Um, but it's interesting. It's not just sort of independent, you know, hackers and developers. Um, it's a lot of students and researchers. So a lot of folks in universities and research centers um, have purchased monocles um, for, for research purpose. Um, and then a lot of small and even large business, so enterprise, they've purchased a number of units to do proof of concept development with the aim of rolling a solution out within the company. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's been very interesting. So, you so know, you've got a development, it's like a development program, so I can buy the SDK, I can develop something on it, and you potentially could put it on your platform and, and deliver that to the broader community? Uh, so right now we we really rely on just direct uh, distribution of people's own software. Right. So, you know, if if you are, um, uh, you know, the internal development unit of a large company and you guys write software that you want to roll out, let's say it's for people doing field repair of certain technical equipment, um, you would write that software. You would battle test it internally, get executive buy-in, all that good stuff, um, and then once it's the green light. You know, you buy a bunch of monocle units from us, right? And directly load your software onto those units. It's all oh, um, over okay. the air. Yeah, it's all over the air, field upgradable with a smartphone. Right. And anyone, as long as they have our app downloaded, um, they can just tap a button, and over Bluetooth, your monocle is updated with the latest software that you want to update it with. Mm. So they can contribute that directly to their own workforce. No need to go through us. I, I'm imagining. I mean, the obvious pathway forward is it becomes a uh, contact lens and just go straight onto your eye. I'm guessing, like, feel like you don't have to be Einstein to work that out. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, contact lens paired with uh, some of the stuff that Elon Musk is working on, right? And Neuralink. I was just going to say, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah, very, very, very interesting. I, I was going to mention him earlier in terms of his approach to manufacturing. Or I guess to you, you. I'm probably going to misquote you here. We were talking about kind of the you know, the, the masses of money going into R&D and expectation that something innovative will come out. Um, I recently read the his biography that was written by a gentleman, I forget his name. It was extraordinary that his approach was very much physics-based and rather than standards-based. So, you know, he talked about six bolts on the Tesla. He goes, why? Well, that's the industry standard. Well, why? Oh, because of the physics when the car hits, you know, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. So he just did the math and he went, well, we only need three three bolts or whatever it was. We don't need six. And here's why. So, so uh, you know, with his with his start, you know, with his rockets, uh, rather than you know spend X amount of billion getting it ninety five percent perfect to get 
people are, blah up the first one, 20% chance it was going to succeed. The next one, 40% chance it was going to succeed, blew up again. The third one blew up. It was hoping that one was going to be, and, and then the fourth one was successful, but he did it cheaper than the Boeings and the, you know, the, the NASA's of the world did it because they had covered all their risks and they just applied standard. There were standards that were engineering standards that weren't necessarily based on, on you know, truth or the reality because the error, the the risk reality was so far further out on the horizon, and he just tested until he got it right, you know, and yep. and and and, uh, and did crazy things like, you know, they were thinking about using carbon fiber or whatever it was, and he said he used stainless steel. It's like, what, what do you do? Well, yeah, it works, you know. Yeah. So, yep. uh, uh, there, I mean, there's something about that first principles approach to thinking that, um, you know, and, and we admire it a lot. We try to employ it where we can. And it's it's a constant exercise in inculcating one's thinking um, to employ it, uh, uh, not, not only in terms of physical product development, but even in terms of, you know, just problem solving, process design, um, uh, use case identification. So like why ought something exists in someone's life, you know, really getting down to the nuts and bolts of, of what life is, how one identifies, how we relate to each other, um, what our what our motivations are in terms of what we want out of life and want to contribute back to the world. So, you know, we, we really, in terms of first principles, tried to start with that on sort of the social psychology side of things. Um, dare I say the spiritual side of things, but, um, but that extends, of course, to the physics of it. Uh, and, you know, in our world, yeah, consumer electronics, um, a great example of this is, all these data sheets that people need to deal with when they're uh, looking at an individual component, let alone wiring things together as a whole system. And to do anything worthwhile, it's got to be you know low power, highly miniaturized. It's got to be fast. It's got to be able to do amazing things on the device. Um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Otherwise, anyone can do it, and it would be the size of a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, yeah and right. so. You know, Right. And so to innovate, there's sort of like you reach this point where, you know, and, and we were kind of laughing about this in the early days with Monocle, like you're literally, you know, these vendors would sell you like a little microchip and you're served with like 100 pages of, of the accompanying data sheet. And, you you know, we're just reading through this and we're like, this was written more by lawyers than it was by engineers. And the engineers that contributed were coached by the lawyers. Right. They were told, <laughs> no, no, like this. You know, yeah, no, yeah. keep the parameters, you know, yeah. the tolerancing has to be this. It can't be that or, you know, yeah. so, you know, so we, we needed to take some of that, that first principles type of inquiry um, that I think Elon just espouses beautifully in his various companies and, and really question why. And yeah. just, you know, when you sort of realize that, oh, wow, okay, this was, this was the lawyer. This wasn't because it makes engineering sense. Yeah. Um, you learn to sort of sidestep certain things and try something. You know, you learn to prototype um, in disregard right. of the data sheet right. because there might just be genius right. at the end of that rabbit hole. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a great can, example. I, I meant to ask a little bit earlier. I wanted to ask about your patent. How, how important was your patent? I don't know what your patent's for. I haven't had time to have a look at it. But um, probably two questions. Uh, was, it, was it important? Doesn't that kind of open up the, you know, your robe to the world and you, you show them what you're doing? You could have gone uh, the path of the um, the trade secret sort of path with regards to this. What, what was your thinking there and it, was it was it worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, hey, we'll, we'll find out. I mean, uh, the patent system is uh, it's a whole conversation, but, um, uh, you know, and, and I think a couple of months ago we saw a company called Massimo 
they were in the news, you know, tussling with Apple over patents and Apple Watch and that whole thing. So I think that that exposed a lot of the ugliness of the patent process and patent disputes. Um, patents are useful in that, you know, the way that I look at it, they're, they're useful in that they help to plant a flag in the ground. Um, they contribute to how you substantiate the value of what you've done and the value of the company. Maybe you're acquired one day as a company and the patents, uh, the portfolio of patents contribute there. So now, we now have actually, I mean, beyond that one that I, I think you might be referencing that I've been published on LinkedIn, we now have like a whole portfolio of, um, I think it's a, close to two dozen patents now that cover a range of, you know, electronics, artificial intelligence, um, uh, mechanical optics. Uh, so we, we, we've been pretty um, vigilant in terms of patenting whatever we can. But we're also under no illusion that that's like a definitive moat in terms of innovation. No. Um, that in this day and age, especially, innovation like is only useful if if you're thoughtful, if you're quick, and if you execute. Um, and your front foot has always got to be faster than people can copy your back foot. Right. Um, and in fact, that was part of what I learned by just observing how Apple approached the first iPod. You know, if you remember, there were a lot of MP3 players and CD players, yeah. and then Apple did the iPod. And then there were a bunch that, uh, you know, Microsoft chiefly with the Zoom, but there were a bunch of companies that tried to copy Apple. And Apple, the pace of innovation there, you know, they patented the hell out of that thing as they usually do. But every six months or nine months, they had a new iPod to market. And the leaps of innovation, miniaturization, thinness, increased storage, full color, you know, video playback, like in a couple of years, it was astounding how they'd evolved that product. And the copycats, who were only ever as fast, barely as my as uh, Apple's back foot, right? And so that that sort of taught me like, wow, okay, they they've patented, but that they don't define innovation in those terms, right? Um, that that it's about how you push your team, it's about how you think big, and how you execute consistently to continue delivering value to the end customer and move the industry forward through that. So yeah, that may be a long-winded way of saying like, yeah, we've. We've got a bunch of patents. I'm really, really proud of what we patented. I'm like terribly excited, especially at the intersection of AI and hardware. We've got a few patents there that are like super cool, but like we don't we don't rest on our laurels because of it, and we don't see that as uh, a definitive mode for innovation. Well, it sounds like it's also kind of in your DNA, your cultural DNA. I'm imagining your company is uh, uh, with a bunch of people who I guess involved with a bunch of people aren't afraid to kind of uh, speak up and 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 you know question things so um uh, and and that gives you that velocity that you need to to stay to stay ahead of the game mate i, I think that's a good place to to stop it um uh perhaps you you would like to let any listeners know how to get in touch with you if they want to if they want to buy the product if they want to get involved in other ways yeah thanks well i mean this has been a fun conversation um, if you want to find out more about Brilliant Labs, we're at www.brilliant.xyz. You can purchase Monocle direct from the site or at the very least learn more about us um, and stay tuned for an exciting uh, product launch announcement that we've got in the coming weeks. Fantastic. Bobak, thank you so much. Uh, good luck with uh, the next stage. We'll be keeping an eye on you. Uh, you're welcome to reach out again in a year or so, and and you know check us in on on how things are going. Uh, I'll be uh, I'll be watching uh, with uh, with interest, um, and uh, all the all the best then to you and your family, mate. Thanks so much, Peter. 
Okay, so that was my conversation with Bob Ack from Brilliant Labs. Please feel free to reach out to him if you are interested in what he's doing. I really enjoyed that conversation. He's a very interesting guy, and I think uh, there's going to be more of him and his company to see in the future. For now, thank you, take care, and I'll catch you next time.